The generations that are growing up right now who are inheriting this uh, troubled planet need to be reminded of joy, be reminded of, of the miracle of this planet. Hello, and welcome to Farm On, the podcast where we get to have conversations with agriculturists, artists, and activists on the front lines of the food movement. I'm Joe Phillips. So apparently Albert Einstein allegedly said that without bees, the human race would last no longer than four years. And as we're painfully aware with each new uh, news report that comes out, the, uh, our little bee friends are our canary in the coal mine for a very, very troubled ecological breakdown. My guest today, Heather Swan, has written a pretty incredible book that um, I was asked to review for a publication, and the review should be coming out in the near future. The book is called Where Honeybees Thrive, Stories from the Field. Heather Swan is a, she's a poet actually, but her day job is as a lecturer at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she also teaches environmental literature and writing there, and she's a beekeeper. So she's got firsthand knowledge of our little Apis mellifera friends, but she also is an incredible writer and researcher and um, is able to put words into a poetic and lyrical narrative that really tell the story of this amazing creature. But she doesn't just tell the story through the bee itself. Um, she's able to cast a net that's pretty wide. She actually goes uh, all over her region. She goes across the country. She travels to China where she uh, wants to learn firsthand our people actually hand pollinating flowers as has been the the rumor and uh, she also reveals incredible capabilities of bees like the ability to uh, detect bombs drugs and d diseases in humans like cancer diabetes tu tuberculosis and even the amazing ability of humans like the aboriginals who made this instrument called the bull roar that lures bees to the people and you're gonna hear that instrument on this episode or people in uh, tibet and china who tie a little string to the leg of a bee to lure them to the honey crazy stuff uh, but this is really just the left brain side of her book uh, where honeybees thrive the right brain side of the book features artists who use the honeybee as their muse to create ethereal, visceral works of art that really show the power of the bee in our culture. So to conduct this interview uh, with Heather Swan on Farman, I asked my good friend and fellow beekeeper Vanessa Beck to do the interview because I knew that Vanessa was passionate about bees and I think uh, she did a really great job. And so Vanessa asks Heather to start off the conversation by reading from her book, Where Honeybees Thrive. Okay, so I'm just going to start on page 21. Um, okay. For a brief few years as a little girl before my parents divorced, my days were spent floating with my dog between my mother's clay studio, my father's painting studio, and the acres of wildflowers and pine trees that surrounded the simple house my parents had built. The landscape outside the door sang with magic and adventure and early glimpses of the sacred. I tied ribbons on my dog on days when she was queen of the world and out we went, marching past the chickens into the fields to observe what was afoot in her kingdom. The bumblebees, grasshoppers, and wrens paid no mind to us, to the flow of my narrative spilling out of my mouth as I reported things to the queen. I was certain that all creatures were sentient, though I didn't know that word at the time. The birds and the bees were obviously living complicated and thoughtful lives. I collected juniper berries like they were jewels and adorned myself with Queen Anne's lace. The wind and the clouds always seemed ready to mirror my emotions. Bliss filled those spaces. From time to time, I lost myself completely in those fields. After a good walk, the dog and I made our way back on the gravel road that led home. On sunny afternoons after a day of rain, scores of yellow sulfur butterflies collected in the damp places where puddles had been, and I would charge through them, suspended for a moment in a fluttering golden cloud. Other days, a big snake sunning himself in the middle of the road would call upon my, the nightly part of me, and I would grab a stick and navigate bra bravely around him. At times, we would seek refuge in the cool piles of pine needles under sagging pine boughs where chickadees were conducting their chittery business. 
It's just great. It's beautiful. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> okay. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for, you know, being a part of this podcast and, and taking the time today to to talk with me. Um, and I just, I almost can't find the words to describe your book. You know, you, you describe all of the um, all of the stimulation of the senses when you're entering your beehive and, you know, mm-hmm. the smells and the emotions and the sights. And I really felt the same when I was opening up your book. I felt like I was opening up a hive and there was texture and you've made such interesting choices of the paper and the paper weight and there's all mm-hmm. this beautiful visual beauty and the poetry and it was just, it was so magical and it was just a, a wondrous treat and I just want to thank you for like putting this book into the world because I feel like I now own an art piece it doesn't feel like just just a book um it feels like you've described it as you know it's part love song part lament and part quest and I really felt like I I went on that journey with you and and so it's been really hard to come up with the questions because I want other people to go on that journey without me spoiling it for them Mm. (laughs) (laughs) oh that's very kind I want them to have that same experience of wonder and if I talk too much about it then they're gonna like know know beforehand I feel like I'm spoiling a movie or something so oh my god thank you that's very that's very kind yes I really I I will say that um I was really blessed to work with the people at Penn State Press because um I I had approached a couple of different people about this book, about making this book, and Penn State Press um, was so excited about including the work, uh, the artwork, and doing it in full color and doing it in individual chapters. And I had these amazing designers um, that I worked with who were very interested in things like texture of the pages and so that the book would actually feel the way it does in your hands and yeah. I, I feel like I was even even the cover um the way that um I was just so lucky to work with them because they were so sensitive to exactly as you were saying the sort of sensual aspects of um the book <laughs> and so yeah. um I feel like um yeah that was very lucky for me to be working with them and you know the the work also of the artist I have to say um I mentioned to a friend the other day, I was talking about my book and I said, part of this, you know, book coming together for me is, is feels a little bit like, um, you know, hosting a party and inviting some really wonderful people and having them all show up. (laughs) And the party isn't great because I hosted it, but because they're all there, you know? Um, and so I, I also feel just very lucky, um, that I was able to work with such amazing people, um, both the artists and also all of the researchers and beekeepers and farmers and, um, just uh, mead makers, just really wonderful, generous, people yeah, who look, also yeah. love bees <laughs> I know and doesn't it give you hope that so many of those people do love bees and the variety like it's just amazing like the art is all so varied you've got Sybil mm-hmm. Peretti with her um you know the the glass work and the ch- the vulnerable children and the 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 bee aspect of that and the hexagons they're just beautiful artworks and then um Rosalind Fisher with her you know these mag, you know, the magnified parts of bees, and you're kind of like, is this cute or is this scary? I'm not sure. I like the fluffy, but I, you know, now I can see sort of like there's hair on their eyeballs. What's going on? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then is um, Kim Gurney with her um, bull roarers. Um, so she's yeah. the South African. Um, artist I'm actually about to move to South Africa so I was really interested in um in her art and those stories um around those bull roars and that she's used yeah. bits of um bits of hive hasn't she in a lot of her art um mm-hmm. to, you know to create that and then Sarah Hutton um with the um the Fibonacci pattern which is, keeps coming up in my life for some reason um, wow yeah, yeah. Um, and using well, it comes up in everyone's life yeah they don't know it <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> it's everywhere um yeah she's brilliant um well all of them are um and and they all are doing such different work um yeah it's all so different isn't it um yeah I think uh so it was interesting because the way that I came 
to knowing all of these artists is um, really kind of amazing sort of, you know, it was serendipity so often, um, you know, way would lead on to way. And, and it was actually interesting with, with Kim Gurney. Um, I became curious about her work before I knew all of the stories um, about the son. Oh. Um, and she was actually the person who um, suggested that I um, read some of these uh, stories. And so um, I have a, a, I owe a great debt to her. She um, was incredibly generous and, um, and her work is just uh, stunning. And she, she did use a lot of um, defunct beehives. Um, and her work is probably the most, I would say, um, conceptual in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. There are many of the artists who are doing things that are sort of recognizable image. Well, sort of. I mean, you could argue that maybe Rosalind Fisher's images are not recognizable until you recognize that it's a bee. And then you (laughs) say, oh, wow, that's a really, you know, enlarged bee. (laughs) Um, Magnified bee. Um, But Kim Gurney is doing really interesting things with... um, you know, making making us understand sort of the fragility of um, plants and insects in ways that are very unusual. And one of the things that was so fascinating to me was that she incorporated sound into her, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the, yeah. the blower. She sent me a, a, a sound clip, but of course I couldn't uh, I couldn't include that in a in the in print a book. book. Yeah, but. Um, but what was amazing was that it was like, um, I'm going to try to do it, and if it's really, I hope it's it's sort of good, but here we go. It was sort of like... about that sound um, that she made with those th- those bull roarers is that it really did mimic the sound of bees. If you if you have your head up against you know your ear against the side of a hive, the sound that they make when they're they're sort of just busy doing their life is this sort of incredibly um, uh, it's a really peaceful sort of murmuring sound. It's it's also, I mean, it's certainly energetic, but it's mm-hmm. uh, but it's uh, it's a sound that is it's uh, so peaceful to me anyway. you talked about how that came to you serendipitously was that the same with all the other artists or did you seek them seek them out how did you come you know across all these beautiful artworks that include bees yes I was certainly on a quest to find work by um, artists who were engaging um, either the bee itself the honeybee specifically itself or larger sort of concepts um that involved pollination and insects and so on so i ended up finding a lot of them um really just because i would be reading something somewhere and i would get a reference to someone and then i would go and learn about them and um discover you know their work and um the really terrific part of it was um that all of them were so generous i you know i would Mm. just um i would write them and say i have this you know this book that I'm creating and I would love to include your work and I, I mean I, without fail they were um, they were very generous and and, and um, sent me you know it's interesting because when you're writing up I'm also a poet and and when you're writing um, something like well at least for me when I'm writing a, a, a poetry manuscript, um, it's very much just sort of an, you know, it's an internal project, right? It's not like, so I don't have to reach out until I'm sort of sharing the poems or something like that. But with this, it was very much um, a collaboration. I, um, 
you know, so I would, I would look at these pieces and, um, talk to the artist and say, would you be willing to, you know, share these, you know, with the larger public and, um, and then they would, you know, they would send me different images and then I was choosing the images. And so, you know, it was just this, and then of course I got to know them as I was doing that. Yeah. Right? And, and so, and they're just, all of them are, are just lovely people. Um, Anybody that's got anything to do with bees is generous. You use that word generous and, <laughs> you know, just if you're an artist or if you're a bee keeper or anything to do with bees, people, there's this generosity, which I've also been blown away with. I love it. Um, and so that sort of leads me onto this question um, about um, compassion. So you talk about in the book um, a couple of things, the the pang of guilt that you sometimes feel, um, and I also <laughs> do when um, opening up the hives, and you know, you're saying that you don't use a smoker now because that um, you feel that upsets the bees less, um, and... Um, in the book it talks about you know the feeling of bees how they can you know how they touch each other um you know that now the industrialization of beekeeping because I always when I started getting into beekeeping I thought oh, I'm not a real beekeeper because I'm just you know I've only got my two two to right. four hives yeah you know, the, the real beekeepers are the ones that have got you know 50 hives but actually yeah. I am a real beekeeper and mm-hmm. you know the the compassion towards the bees so um, I was just one, wondering if you could talk a bit more about the research you know that shows that insects and bees do have emotions and and your you know your own feeling of compassion towards them it's so interesting I, I, there are a few things I I just want to say and one of them is that um I there are times when it's really essential to, uh, if there are beekeepers, you know, besides the two of us listening, um, and they will say, you know, sometimes it's really important to have a smoker. And I certainly felt that that was true when I was working with Eugene Waller. And, you know, he is a person who's a honey producer who has, you know, hundreds of hives. And um, I talk in the book about the experience of going mm. with him um, to, to, you know, to, we were on a honey harvest and, uh, that was it was very important to have a smoker at that time. But the amazing thing about um, about Eugene is that he is a person who is incredibly uh, sensitive to the experience of the bee uh, the, the bees um, feelings, I'll say. Um, and I think once you've spent time with hives of bees um it's so clear that they can become agitated that they become scared um that they're happy uh, or well happy might be the wrong word but peaceful um and they're you know and there's there have been you know scientific uh studies now that are are looking at this um which i mentioned in one of the chapters and um one of the the really wonderful experiences i had um with one entomologist, uh, Sineth Suryanarayanan, is is learning from someone who looks at bees, for the most part, as uh, as uh, sort of participants in an experiment. Um, and, and I think that we have this idea that scientists can sort of separate themselves from um, the work that they're doing, and, and 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 quite possibly many of them do do that. Um, and 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 actually, I think that that uh, large commercial beekeepers also have to do that. They have to sort of uh, disconnect uh, from the beings that they're that they're dealing with every day, right? Um, but the thing about Sai Sina uh, Suryanarayanan is that his experience working. Um, with, it was he was actually working with wasps first, um, and it became really clear to him that they were they were having an emotional life, and and what he was asked to do in, as part of his uh, his work uh, was to kill them, and um, it became really hard for him. And I think that uh, what's what's interesting is that I think um, you know very often. Um, well, for you know, for centuries, really, we had we had this idea that you know animals are you know from Descartes on, kind of you know we have we have this idea that the the animal doesn't have any feelings, uh, the animal doesn't uh, have any sort of um, 
emotional capacity and and things like logic uh, those things were mm. like they, the, each time we had these these sort of revelations about that we thought oh wow you know oh primates uh can solve problems they they can communicate with language they you know so it was uh sort of undoing all of these ideas that we had the the, the that animals were somehow and insects were somehow limited um, but instead, it's it's what I think that we're finding now so much more. Uh, you know, you you find so many wonderful stories about, you know, the, the sort of common ones are you know elephants are mourning and mm. cr- crows are using tools and um, and and honeybees are are experiencing. Uh, you know, they have stress. They you can you can uh, you can scare them. You can make them feel more peaceful. I mean, it's just it's kind of. Um, it's so exciting. There's a beautiful piece by uh, Cy Montgomery uh, about octopus consciousness. I mean, it, it just—I think that what's happening is, is as we ourselves to new kinds of of understandings of the world um, that are not limited by our own human understanding. We're recognizing that there's that the you know the planet is just filled with this richness, right? Um, yes. Even plants and trees, you know, I mean, there's so much uh, that we don't understand that we're just beginning to understand, which comes out of, I think, going back to your original question, this idea of, of, of compassion, of, of, um, of listening, you know, listening with a different kind of um, lens, kind of with an openness that, uh, that I think that traditionally we haven't really had with insects especially insects right insects yes. are always yeah <laughs> insects are kind of the lowest on the you know on the chain there oh, but, um, they really are and because you know you talk about because of their size you know they're very easily squashable and right. um and then so that when you do see them in a larger form um or learn about you know that they they do communicate and and they do have feelings that you, it really changes your perspective towards them. And so you become much more mindful. Um, there's been this little bug in my cupboard that's reproducing um, that I was happily squashing. And then I read your book and now I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, he can eat the flower. It's fine. <laughs> right, right. It's so funny. I mean, I, I certainly think that we have, uh, we have times when we'd like to invite them to live outside. You know? <laughs> yes, um, yeah. And... Um, yeah, and I mean, I, I certainly know that you know part of the the project of this book, I think, is to to you know um, say things in a way that that suggesting they're sort of you know big sweeping gestures, and I, and of course you know you can't you know I I've spent a lot of time studying Buddhist ideas, and one of the things that you know that there's this idea that you shouldn't kill any sentient beings, right? And yeah. um, so then you think like, okay, well, how am I how am I going to drive my car down the highway because <laughs> you know there will be uh you know there'll probably be a collision with something that's flying in the air and and so you can't i think it's obvious that you can't you know you can't you can't have it in every moment but um certainly to to extend our understanding a little bit you know to expand it uh to include the possibility that those lives are complicated and important i mean important mm. not just um for their own sake but also probably for the larger interconnected ecosystem you know i mean you can't just remove one section of that sort of incredible um structure and think that it will not be affected you know so um, so yeah, it is about going with more gentleness and mindfulness. I think yes, and I and I like world. that because I think you know in the past we have we don't give um, animals and insects emotions because it excuses our actions towards them, um, and so now if you are presented with this idea, you can you can make a choice about your your mindfulness. So right, absolutely. So my next um, big step, um, big question is um, colony collapse, um, mm-hmm. which you know is 
is throughout the book you know you there's there's so much beauty throughout the book and and there's so much um information but it, it does all come back to what is you know what's happening with the bees um mm-hmm. and eugene says you know bees have been dying out by the millions um and and he talks about how you know over his time of beekeeping things have really changed um and that we do have to be more involved with our bees and um, we have to monitor them more and you um you mentioned pesticides and you'll have to help me say it but neo isotonides no that's not right well it's so interesting because i I may not be the expert on how to pronounce i've I've been saying neonicotinoids but it's possible that um that there's another pronunciation that's better um but neonix is what yeah the the short version let's go with that yeah uh you know the, I think that um, the the concern uh, that I would love to have uh, come through in this book is that our dependence on um, pesticides is crazy. It's, it's, we're, <laughs> yes. we're, I mean, we're really we're pouring these toxic substances onto our land. Uh, without having any concept of, of what's happening, what combinations, what cocktails of pesticides mm. that we're creating. Um, and, and, and we do it sort of just because it's what everyone does. You know, I mean, I, I'm always just stunned. I, you know, I have this chapter that's on lawns, and I am always just amazed at how there's this period of time when just about, you know, everybody you know, is, is, is putting, they're putting these toxic chemicals all over their lawns and, and then, you know, walking their dog through the grass and, and, uh, and then planting flowers right next to these plots of, you know, these areas where there's all this, you know, chemical. Yeah. And uh, sitting on the grass and having a picnic and rolling in it. Right. And I, you know, and it's just, I mean, I think that it just, it's heartbreaking. I, I, I have to say that one, you know, I am, um, I, I'm sure that there will be people that will argue with me about um, whether or not we should have pesticides at all. I mean, I, I, I think that I, I've been, um, I've had some experiences in my life that have just made me feel like, you know, I would love it if we did organic everything. Um, my One of the things that happened was that a good, uh, Oh, well, John Icebox's uh, father, um, when I was a child, we, we knew about John Icebox's father, who yes. uh, who was killed, um, you know, because he got sprayed uh, with pesticides. And um, I had another experience, which was, it was, I mean, I look back now and think, well, you know, what was I thinking? Uh, but I, I heard this plane over my house that I had just moved into uh and my daughter was was very small at the time and I heard this plane and I thought is it going to crash into the house so I grabbed her and I ran downstairs and I I because I thought if it was going to crash I didn't want to be <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to be in the upstairs of the house because yeah. you know and uh so I ran downstairs and I went outside and it was just as a plane was coming over right over the treetops and it was a it was a crop duster <gasps> and we were sprayed. Um, before I realized what was happening, I saw the mist and I couldn't get inside fast enough. So we were we were um, yeah we were sprayed uh, with this chemical and I and I remember feeling like uh, and then she got you know, subsequently sick. And, um, and I remember thinking, yeah, I just remember thinking this, this, I mean, this is happening all the time. We're, you know, we're, we're spraying these chemicals. Sometimes it's very low to the ground. And so we're not aware of it, but that was really a powerful experience to be, you know, sort of vulnerable, well, completely vulnerable. Yeah. uh, Yeah. uh, 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 Under, under a plane, uh, spraying out this stuff. And, um, I guess that, uh, you know, partly I just think I wish that we could just pay more attention to that, uh, you know, to, to, to say, do we really need to <laughs> do we really need to put all of that stuff into our environment when we know that it's toxic enough that we have mm. to put up little signs and we have to have all of these, 
you know, warning labels and things like that. And, uh, and I don't need to go into it, but it's, it's, it is alarming, um, how much of how many pesticides we're using all the time. Uh, I would say the thing, the thing about colony collapse specifically is that, um, I mean, I think it's, the problem is that it's so many, uh, there are so many factors, right? I mean, I think that we know that the neonics are bad for bees. We know that because we are uh, reducing habitat for them, both this is now wild bees and honeybees, right? We uh-huh. we we have uh, fields that are, that, you know, our our monocropping is is designed so that um, that we only have one you know, plant growing there and we, we try to kill off everything else. And, and that's not great for bees. Um, and so, um, you know, the habitat loss is another thing. Uh, viruses are a, a concern too. And I think um, there are a lot of, you know, reasons for why bees are more vulnerable to viruses than they used to be. Um, and part of that is just, uh, you know, th- the fact that their immune systems are not as strong um, and again, this goes back to it's a, it, it's so multifaceted, right? Um, I think that um, if their diet was better, uh, if they weren't ingesting pesticides all the time, then maybe they would have a chance, you know, to then they might be healthier and yeah. able to, you know, yeah. ward off these things. Uh, just like so a, just I, like a human, if your diet exactly. is better and you're not filling yourself with antibiotics and yeah. and different different drugs, then you're you're healthier, aren't you? So it's the same for the bees. Yeah. So, um, so yes, I think that that it's the a really smart thing would be just for one step would be to um, you know certainly stop using uh, pesticides that we know are bad for them. You know that would be one step. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but in a world that is seems to be driven by greed, mm-hmm. um, you know, enterprise and greed. Um, pesticides make sense but if if the world isn't if the world is um is driven by compassion and community then pesticides don't make sense so i guess it depends you know what what world we want to want to live in and um you talked about the monocrops and we think oh yes you know those big those big terrible monocrops and those big farmers but then you mentioned there's 40 million acres of lawn in America, I, was, I, I think I had to read that a couple of times when you bring that up in the book, you know, and that's, that's not the farmers, that's us. No, 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 yeah. You know, that, yeah. We've got the lawn and we're putting the roundup on the lawn and, you know, there's this, you talk about this whole lawn culture and where it's come from and um, mm-hmm. I've mentioned on other podcasts uh, that I have done some work with basement flooding in Chicago mm-hmm. where we've concreted mm-hmm. everything and, mm-hmm. and we've lawned everything and lawn doesn't take in water and so you end up with urban flooding because the lawn is nicely cut um, and nicely short, but there's no roots under the air, so the water's not going back into the earth. Fascinating. Yeah, right, and right. so we really want to get people to start thinking about what pretty is. Pretty mm-hmm. isn't this nice green lawn. Pretty is local um, plants and uh, Midwest plants that have these deep, deep roots, yes. um, which are great for the bees and they're great for the flooding and they're great for the water. But we've yeah really got this culture, this lawn culture. Yeah. Um, so that was a really interesting chapter, I thought, um, in your book because that's that's something that we can we can I think you know we can really make a change there. Absolutely. Yeah. I and I I think that when I when I was writing this book, I had this idea that I wanted to blame somebody (laughs) when I started I thought I really and it it just became so clear to me that it's a whole system Mm -hmm. um of of all of these different components working together and I think that that's actually why I made the book the way that I did uh because there's no there's no one person to blame there's no one system there i mean it's there is a system uh but there are all these different components of that system and you can't blame just one of those components i mean it's all of these things sort of operating together so for the for that reason uh solutions can come from so many different places right yeah, and so yeah. um i think that i just want to say that i feel like uh 
uh, I just I think that there, that many of the farmers um, are doing the practices that they're doing not because they've not because they hate bees and not because they've chosen um, you know to to do something that would be um, devastating to the water and the soil and all those things, but because the way that uh, industrial farming has moved. Um, they 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 don't have many choices, and so I think that they or at least they don't see the don't see many choices, and so I, I think um, that was why it was really important for me to go spend time with um, you know a really big grower, uh, a, a blueberry grower, and, yes, and to see yes. that there are solutions, that there, and that there are many farmers that are doing these things, that they're 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 taking big swaths of this you know of of land next to their fields and their they're planting them with with native plants, and I mean, it's just it's so exciting uh, for me to to know that that there are ways to, and, and not just that there are ways, but they're 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 in place already. These things are already happening, you know. And it's I think that it's really easy um, to look at the headlines and say, oh, you know, you know, all the bees are dying. How terrible! Uh, there's nothing we can do, and. I actually talked about this at one point in the book too, and I, you know, I think to myself, you know, the the generation of students that I teach, um, you know, they are getting a lot of bad news all of the time, and I, I think that for me, I wanted to show in this book uh, the many strategies that we have happening already, and that we just, you know, if more people could could see those those strategies and then, you know, employ them in their own lives. Like you said, in changing the idea of the lawn, you know, Mm -hmm. um, uh, planting native plants, as you said, it's just, it's, it's like, if we think meadow rather than golf course, you know, (laughs) it is prettier, right? I mean, it's, um, can you just talk a little bit more about what the blueberry farmer, um, and his practices were? Yeah. Uh, so Dennis Hartman. Uh, so I met with an entomologist named Rufus Isaacs, and um, he was working with uh, actually many farmers. But uh, the person who I spent a great deal of time with was Dennis Hartman, and um, and he and his wife. She's a huge part of the operation too. Uh, but they um, have have made some choices with their their enormous blueberry uh, production facility. <laughs> it's, I mean, they've got all these fields and then they've got this uh, amazing sort of plant where they, which I describe in the book, um, where they are, uh, where they're actually really thinking about how to keep the land healthier, how to use fewer pesticides, how to, to, uh, to make these, these, these pieces of land, um, land that will be more sustainable, uh, for humans and insects and blueberries. Right. So the thing was, Isaac, uh, Rufus Isaac went to them and said, um, he said, you know what? I have this idea. I'd like to try with you. And I think that if we plant these wildflowers on the side of your fields, uh, there's a chance your, your blueberries are going to do better. And so for several years, they did this experiment. And sure enough, what was incredible was not only did they get bigger blueberries, but they got more of them. So what it says is that if you have healthy pollinators, and of course, these are not just honeybees, these are wild bees too. Um, you're going to have healthier crops. Yes, yeah, you know? So yeah. it's actually great for farmers. It's a win-win. Um, yeah. So, and it's healthier, right? Mm-hmm. He had to use fewer uh, pesticides. He uh, he got to have this. The other thing is, it's just really beautiful to go and and walk through one of these fields. Um, so it's it, you know it's good for him. It's good for the bees. It's good for everyone. Everyone involved. So I love it's it. Very hopeful. Yeah. Yes. Um. So you know we've got these people who have got into you know they've got the blueberry farmer who can do that kind of thing and he's growing. But then, um, we've got this idea of um, you know, people growing for themselves as well to feed their family. Just this um. And lots of people don't have vegetable gardens anymore, or don't have 
the knowledge um, to grow. I just gave a friend her first tomato plant, um, and she actually got some tomatoes off it this this summer. And it's you know her first experience of growing, and now she's feeling you know really confident that perhaps you know, next summer and next spring she can actually you know grow some more. And and people right. having this experience, and so just wanted to talk with you around the joy of gardening and especially community gardens and the role that they play. And what it means to be a resilient community um, and what we can learn from each other that way, but what we can learn from the bees as far as being a resilient community as well. So I had this really wonderful experience of going and spending time with urban gardeners in Milwaukee. And as you say, um, the, the power of a garden to bring people together is just sort of magical it's really mind-blowing how um the the physical labor uh that you know one of the things about this this moment is that many of us are are so sort of locked into our technological world that even going outside and getting your hands in the dirt and Mm -hmm. planting something um is so rewarding by itself right and then having something grow and then actually feed you i mean that's just <laughs> yeah. amazing but but what's really neat is that um that what there what's happening in in milwaukee is that these areas uh and this has been going on for a long time um there uh but there are areas that were really sort of um destroyed for a, a number of reasons you know uh, sort of vacant lots and 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 places that had been just riddled by uh, crime and um, there's a long history to that and why that happened. But um, the the amazing thing is that putting a bunch of uh, fruit trees, for example, uh, into uh, a vacant lot and getting the community to suddenly sort of be interested in taking care of that land uh, not only brings them together but gives them sort of pride in that space and um, it, it, it's just kind of and then there's food, right? There's fresh food for people yes. that are living in these areas that are often, um, you know, Our fresh food deserts. deserts. Yeah, right, right. And um, so it's 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 wonderful on so many levels. And I think um, the really interesting thing about this community, Walnut Way, that I spent time with, was that they were very much aware of. They were very conscious of the narrative of their story, uh, and they they. They sort of uh, they used the honeybee and the hive um, as a as a model um, as we have for centuries, right? I mean, the, the honeybees are um, are found in lots of, of myths and and uh, and essays and all kinds of things. But the thing the thing that they uh, like to talk about is that uh, you know the the honeybees as a community are are all working together and um, that the sweetness that comes from that community working together, the honey, you know, is, is really symbolic for them. Um, and, and they, they have their, you know, they have their beehives in this very sort of, um, uh, uh, visible space in the, in, in the community. And, and, uh, they, I think that there's something really wonderful about having that garden and those bees be the sort of center, um, of, of the, renewal that they're hoping to have there and it it, it it's it's remarkable how things have changed there yeah. um and and i you know is it only the garden <laughs> the bees? i i don't i don't think we can say that but i think that that's a huge part of it it's a huge part of it um well, it's creating that space, isn't it? It's it's creating a space for people to reconnect with the land and to reconnect with each other. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, Detroit has this uh, has an amazing uh, community of you know urban farmers and and um, the poet Ross Gate writes about his experience with a community garden um, where he is living in Indiana and um, Chicago has. Uh, lots of great little places where you know wonderful gardens are popping up, and it's interesting. Like New York City has rooftop gardens, yeah. and and, and uh, you know they're all over the world. There are these amazing urban gardens happening on rooftops, and and like you said, in little pockets. And um, so it is. It's it's 
it's incredible. And I think that the thing is that because there, as you said, there are these little pockets, I think that we don't often uh, notice those. You know, those are the, the, we don't hear about those as much as we hear about the big devastating things, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so it's just, I think it's great to talk about that and and, and talk about how, how really uh, positive that is and how it's really making a lot of people happy and it's making a lot of insects and plants and, and the, you know, and water systems and air, everything. Yeah. It's, it's better for, for so many reasons, you know. It so. is. It's better for your mental health as well. I just, yeah. I love gardening, the joy of it. And um, my mum is a great gardener and, and she would never stop. So if you wanted to talk uh, to mum, you would have to follow her around the garden and she's always got dirt under her fingernails and it's just so, so happy it's um, so beautiful. Yeah, I love it. I just love it. And um, and I just think the conversations that you have when you're gardening together or um, we I help with the farm that um, that Joe has here. That's a quarter acre. Um, but uh, one of the other farmers, Kelsey, we spend a lot of time um, turning the compost. But the conversations we have when we're turning compost, you know, it's just, fan, just fantastic. And it really creates that space, you know, space as far as you know time it creates time to actually right. be mindful and listen to each other and have input into each other's lives it really right. it slows things down and I really I really like that oh it's so important too in this world that we have where you know we're just inundated by you know text messages and mm -hmm. um, all kinds of emails to, you know all, it's 24 hours a day you know and so for us to uh, I was just about to say disconnect, uh, unplug, so that we yep. really can connect. Is what yeah, I think. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it's really beautiful. Uh, yeah, and I think a garden is a great space for that. And I and and yeah, I think the other thing is that it's it's also just so important to recognize that sort of um, to be aware of the 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 sort of cycle of life that is happening around us all the time but to be so intimate with it in the garden um like you talk about the compost that there's you know that that decomposition that that is then feeding the new seeds and you know yeah. it's just really beautiful yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, my mom just every time i call her she is like and i planted this little seed and then it turned oh. into a carrot and oh. you know, she, she's been gardening <laughs> for 50 years she's 75 and so she's been gardening for all this time and she's amazed every single time well, it it's, it's great crazy. It's, yeah. it's, it's so crazy that that, that happens I, you know I, I say that all the time myself I just think like I look at something even at like a you know a daisy or a, a you know a tree and I think that grew out of the ground like that was a little tiny seed and now it's that you know I mean that is incredible right it I mean, is it's, it's, it's so so incredible I love it I just love it I, and I love how um it allows you to have that sense of wonder and to be that child again um mm -hmm. and so in one of your chapters you um you talk about joy and hope um, because you meet these lovely makers of mead and yeah. um and it was so funny I sent you that email that I hadn't thought about mead in my life um <laughs> and hadn't really even I think I'd had it once before um and then I read that chapter that day and then went up and um and and had some mead at my friend's house when I dropped some stuff so off amazing. there yeah, yeah. <laughs> just amazing I and it's it's funny because it's a, a you know it's not something that everybody loves but I think that the the thing about being with uh Colleen uh, was that she uh believe so strongly sort of in the magic of it and, yeah. I, and I was I was just I was just captivated actually by her sort of commitment to uh creating something that would taste like her landscape that she was you know that the, the landscape she was living in and and that varies of course seasonally um but she uh she's so interesting you know she she was a medieval studies scholar you know before she, she did <laughs> yeah. this and I just think you know that's so great um but yeah I feel like I sort of talked about this earlier but I I feel like our you know the generations that are growing up right now who are inheriting this uh troubled planet 
um, need to be reminded of joy, be reminded of, of the miracle of this planet. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, I frequently take my students outside and, uh, out of the classroom into the, uh, to an area, uh, that it's wooded near the lake in where I teach, close to where I teach. And what's stunning, and I invite them to shut off their phones, and it's only for about 45 minutes or something like that that I have them do this. Um, but it's basically a mindfulness exercise. But what's stunning to me is how many of them say to me later, I, it was so important that I did that. I never, I never turn off my phone. I never sort of really pay attention with my body. Because I ask them to like, you know, tell me what you're smelling. What do you know? Yes. Write down all the things that you're hearing, you know. And and the thing is that what's so interesting is that that, that slowing down and, and tuning into the to the earth, it, it, it actually gives them this sense of hope. And, and, and I I think, you know, it's possible that, you know, that maybe my generation needed apocalyptic stories and, and, you know, we probably still need them. You know, we need, we need to have the, the information certainly. And, um, and sort of the, you know, I, you know, I'm a fan of Margaret Atwood and, you know, I, you know, a lot of, I read a lot of that stuff, but I, I also think that we need to have a second narrative, you know, I mean, we need to have, and I'm not the the first person to say this certainly. Um, but I, I do think that it's it's important that we recognize that there are and and um, you know I, I I think it's about strategies again. It's recognizing that there is hope, there is joy. Slowing down and sitting under a tree and spending a half an hour looking at the water and noticing what birds are singing and that there's a little insect crawling on the log next to you. I mean, it's like life is continuing. All these miracles are continuing, and so it's it's. It's it's recognizing that I don't know for me that's hopeful right and all the yep. stories in this book are hopeful I feel like there are so many people who are doing this work and that's really I mean I have to say that part of my decision uh, to write this book in the way that I did was because I was I was getting so depressed and sad you know I started apprenticing these beekeepers and I just got so overwhelmingly. Uh, I just I, I was just overwhelmed by all of the the the. This, you know, the doomsday scenarios, and I thought, boy, I bet I'm not the only person that's feeling this way. I think I better go out and find, you know, some some people that are doing projects that are innovative and interesting, that are um, that are that, that that offer these possibilities for a different future instead of the the bleak one that we're we're sort of told about all the time, right? And I, not not to be blind, you know, certainly you know, it's, it's someone. I've been accused of being Pollyanna sometimes, you know, thinking like, (laughs) it certainly isn't that. It's born out of a a keen awareness of how much devastation there is. But so my, my point was with this book, I thought, okay, you know what, those other, those other stories are out there. So, and and it's certainly, you know, I certainly have lots of negative things in this book, but, but my, my idea was to say there's a way out of this, you know, we can, we can make changes. We can, at least in our, you know, yards, in our gardens. And, and um, so, yeah, I think hope is important. Is that, yeah. Did I answer the question? No, you, you really did. And, and you've <laughs> actually led to the sort of the final bit of the podcast um, where we look at, you know, you mentioned there's an environmental renaissance. And um, so what can be done? What are, what are these actions um, for ourselves or for wanting to educate others? Um if you've got, you know, some things that you would like people as a, you know, as a takeaway that they can make a change in their lives or in the lives mm-hmm. of others, what what would those be? I think that there are many things that people can do just right away. And one one of them is, you know, if if you can afford it, you can buy organic food. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, if you live in a place that has local food available in a farmer's market, go support those farmers. Um, if they're organic, all the better. Um, if you can um, plant different things, and if you have a, you know, if you have a bit of land that you have any control over, you can, you know, you can avoid putting pesticides on it. You can plant different plants 
besides just the grass, you can you can you can plant native flowering plants, and in it, it's really amazingly beautiful. Um, and you'll get more than just honeybees. You know, you'll get uh, all kinds of different pollinators, and you'll be supporting with the seeds from those plants. You'll often be uh, helping birds uh, survive, uh, and. Um, and I think that, as you were saying, I mean, I think it's partly getting in touch with uh, sort of getting in touch with something like maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a tomato plant and, and, and maybe you don't have a whole lawn. Maybe you just have a porch. Um, maybe you can connect that way with the, by, by putting a, a tomato, a potted plant on your, on your, on your deck. Um, I think it's also important to like, you know, if you're a person that is that that likes to uh, to be active in in different ways, but like to raise consciousness, I mean to to, to talk to people about that. I think it's um, you know to talk about how you're excited about you know having a chemical free world, you know, uh, or at least chemically um, uh, less maybe a less chemical world. Um, you know, to to advocate for clean water, to advocate for clean air, uh, to yeah, plant things. Um, and you know, if you're really if you're if you're not afraid of bees, it might be interesting for you to spend some time. You know, find your local beekeeper and go out and learn about what it means to be a beekeeper. And 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 you know maybe get a hive of your own if, if it's really exciting to you. Um, I mean, there's so many things, I think, that we can do. Uh, um, we can make a difference, which again brings us back to hope. Um, so what, this is my final question, what for you is the most magical thing about bees? Oh, oh my gosh, that's like <laughs> asking a painter what their favourite colour is. I think, I, uh, I think that what's magical to me about bees is watching them when they're in the hive and I've, I've just opened up the hive and I'm not doing anything like taking anything out, but just to, to watch them and the way that they are so uh, sensitive to each other, the way that they're living there together, working together in this community, which, and I mean, this is now going to sound, you know, a little bit crazy maybe but I really believe that that's a community that is that has something like love it might not be love mm -hmm. in the way that we would describe it but it's it's a community that there's this incredible thing that bees do sometimes and it's called shaming and it's when the, if the bees are trying to um, for, for a variety of reasons they do this but what it is is, is they're taking they're holding hands and they, they make this chain across a space out of bees and and seeing that for me that sort of community that coming together to make this this you know to span a space by just holding i just you know holding each other's little hands and legs i it's so it's so beautiful and i think i think that uh i mentioned this this beekeeper named michael thiel and he, he talks very much about how the bees can can teach us this idea of interbeing and it's it's about how to to be in community in a way that is is harmonious and cooperative and collaborative and that i think more than anything is is what keeps me interested in them and what they produce is is sweet right it's yeah. honey yeah it's very beautiful so maybe we have been, we're trying to save the bees, but the bees are actually going to save us. I think so. I think if we start paying attention to them, oh, yeah, a lot more hope. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Heather. This has Thank been you. so um, just a wonderful experience with all of it. I, yeah. I'm just so honored that, uh, that you took the time to talk with me today. And it just, it's really such a pleasure to talk to you as well. So thank you for sharing all of your stories about gardening and Good luck with your bees. Thanks, Thanks so much, Heather. Bye. Bye. All right. Um, let the bees save us. Do what we can. Do our part. And pick up the book, Where Honeybees Thrive, Stories from the Field by Heather Swan. It's available from Penn State University Press, uh, direct on their website, or I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon, too. 
So thanks so much for listening. Please share this with like-minded folks. You can find Farm on the Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, We're always looking for sponsorship, so if you're interested, please drop a line. You can find me on Twitter at FarmOnDharma. That's FarmOn, D-H-A-R-M-A. Or just drop me an email at dharmaonthefarm at gmail.com. Anyway, thanks for listening. We've got great new guests coming up in the future, so please stay tuned. And until then, follow the sun and farm on.